Welcome to the Garden Path Podcast. I'm your host, Misty Little. This is episode nine, and today I have Erin Gettler from the Familiar Wilderness on. She is a naturalist and artist from Long Island that I've come to know via Twitter and her blog, The Familiar Wilderness. Um, I think I came across her blog in about 2011. We talked briefly about that on the podcast, but we have many similar passions, uh, especially mainly the interest in the natural world. And she was one of the first people I thought of um, to have on the podcast back when I was brainstorming, uh, starting this thing. And mostly because I really thought that there should be a naturalist component to gardening. And I think that kind of gets left out on occasion. And that was actually highlighted (laughs) to me right before I asked her for certain to to be on the podcast uh, from a very prominent gardening blog, um, the mention of being a better naturalist and that it seemed there were a lot of comments to that that post that people didn't really pay attention to much in the garden other than what they planted. So I thought it was very appropriate to ask Erin to be on the podcast. And I hope you guys enjoy uh, the discussion. We talk everything from why she started the Familiar Wilderness, to her current endeavors in um, art and photography and writing. And um, actually hope to have her on again maybe next year to expound upon some of her other, her current goals and endeavors. Um, so I guess I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. And if you have any questions for Erin, please leave them on the blog um, and she'd be glad to answer, I'm sure. Thanks. Hope you guys enjoy. I've got Erin Gettler on with me today. And I think it's kind of interesting how we, I don't know, I don't actually remember how I met you, if it was via Twitter or if I was like searching for you on a blog. Do you have any remembering remembrance about that? I think it was the blogs first. I think... Do you remember there was that natural history blog network? Oh, yeah. I think either you or I found the other and commented, and from there it went on to Twitter eventually. Yeah. Yeah, I I was not an early adopter to Twitter. I kind of thought it was silly, (laughs) but now I don't. (laughs) So, um, and like we were saying, you have a day job, but you are a naturalist, uh, I guess, on the side but it seems like it's a big part of your life. How did you start your blog? So, um, gosh, I was thinking about it today, and I started the blog about five, six years ago. And it started in part because I have this weird habit of when I want to learn how to do something, I like to have a project to practice on. And at the time, I was learning a little bit of photography. And... I had started learning all of this cool stuff about nature and got excited about sharing it and the combination of the photographs and reports on my adventures and the types of things that I was learning kind of coalesced into the blog. I had the lofty ideal that I wanted to get people excited about nature and I thought one of the best ways to do it was to make it beautiful but also accessible and that was in part because my adventures were mostly right around my suburban 
neighborhood. And I thought, if I can do it here, so can everybody else. And let's all get excited about it together. Yeah, I really agree with that. And I think a lot of people don't think they live in an interesting place. And in reality, there's probably something extremely interesting about about their neighborhood, whether it's you know suburban, urban, or even rural. And um, I think that was something that we kind of talked about on a little Twitter chat the other day about the East Coast kind of yeah. getting not getting the love it deserves. And that goes for a lot of places, not getting the love it deserves. Yeah, well, and that was kind of the blog that I had that I started six years ago. It's called The Familiar Wilderness. And the inspiration behind the idea is kind of reaction to the, the thought and the common perception that in order to find interesting nature, nature that's worth your time, you have to go to a national park or you have to go to South America or Africa. And we don't get enough of a enough people pointing fingers and saying this park that your your kids go to for their elementary school field trips has amazing, interesting things like salamanders and native birds and native plants that you maybe never heard of, but are just as interesting and fascinating as anything that is on a BBC documentary. Yes, I totally agree with that. <laughs> and I I remember, I mean, just talking about kids stuff, I mean, I remember going to a nature center in Fort Worth growing up and not really visiting much else beyond when as an elementary school, but returning there as an adult and going, Oh my gosh, I can't believe this is here in, in Fort Worth. And I never really thought about it that much as obviously as a teenager, you have other, other things in your mind. So, and I, things get kind of pushed away and, you know, I guess maybe the adults don't know what they have, so they don't teach it to their kids. And, um, I don't know. That's something I really liked when I saw your blog. <laughs> well, and I have the same experience. So I grew up in northern Illinois, and of course I didn't pay much attention to um, – sorry about that. I didn't pay much attention to the nature that was around the area, and now I live on Long Island um, in the east. And every time I go back home to visit my family in northern Illinois, I I try to make a habit of going to a park that I maybe never went to. There are so many parks. There are so many conservation projects. There are so many amazing animal species and um, native plants and prairie restorations that are growing up around this cornfields and urban blight area that I grew up in. And every time I go back, I'm so fascinated and I'm really curious about how I missed it in the first time around. Yeah, um, how has your writing about these places or even talking with, like, when you do go back home to these places, are you able to get people interested in going to see these places? Or is this still, like, your kind of niche that, you know, you're the only one that's interested in them? It's really funny. I've done uh, some shows with my photography here on Long Island, and... I have I post Instagram shots and a lot of my friends from home are, uh, uh, see them and or, you know, I, I meet people later when I'm home visiting and we talk about what I've been doing since I've been home. And I mention these places or these things that I've seen. And you would think that people would be 
you know, dismissive and, oh, crazy Aaron. But it turns out that when you say, did you know that this amazing thing is right in your backyard? People get excited about it. People have seen my photos and said, where did you take this? And when I say, oh, it's just right up the road. It's this beautiful park that very few people go to. A week later, they say, oh, I went to that park. You were right. It was so pretty. And so writing and sharing the photos and talking about the types of things that I do in my spare time, really, people get engaged and then they go exploring and they find out about it. And so rather it being a very niche thing, it turns out that it's more of people not being aware of what's around them. And when they learn about it, they really tune into it. I think people are very hungry for that type of thing. That's awesome. I'm glad to hear that you're actually successful in getting people out and about. And I think in some aspect, I've been able to do that with some of my friends and family. Obviously, not all of them are as you know, diehard nature nerds as, <laughs> as me and my husband are, but um, they've definitely had some of their eyes open to just how many parks are around them. And I, I think help, helping me at least identify little out-of-the-way places has been you know, the internet and with just Google Maps and Google Earth, like how many natural areas, little green green blobs on a map, and you're like, hmm, I wonder what that is. And you Google it, and sure enough, it's like it could be a Nature Conservancy property that's, you know, an easement. It could be anything. And there's so much that I think we drive by. We don't, we don't realize something's cool about that place. So. Right. You don't realize that it's accessible habitat, that you're allowed to go there. All these different things that factor into it. I check um, eBird from through the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and you check in. No, wait, no, it's from the uh, ABA. I'm sorry, but it's a it's a database where people enter their bird sightings, mm-hmm. and it's based on a map, and you can look on the map anywhere in the world, and there are icons that note the hotspots. And a lot of the hotspots are parks so that you'll find them on Google Maps. And a lot of them are those small conservation easements or um, public access space of, of some kind, a cemetery or whatever. And then you plug that into Google and it turns out to be this fantastic wild spot where you'll see birds that you might not see anywhere else. It's a fantastic that we have all of these resources at our fingertips where we can tap into everybody else's knowledge and learn where we can go to find out more. Yeah, and I think something about blogging and even just, I mean, sometimes I feel like I go to these places and I do like a trip report and I write things up and I don't feel like, well, you know, okay, you know, my friends and family are going to be like, wait, that's great. But I definitely noticed that a lot of them, you know, when people, other people are out researching, my blog's helping those people decide if they're going to go and see this place. I use that as, for, for my research, if I'm going to a town, okay, what's around here, and try to find, you know, people writing about it. So I definitely think that by us writing about it, to some extent, it helps, it's been, it helps getting other people out and about and to see what's what's around. I mean, have you had that trend on your blog too? Yeah, I think for a while when it was being maintained pretty regularly, that was one of my biggest sources. I was doing for a little while. Um, it, it didn't really get off the ground, but I did a little project for a bit uh, called the Long Island Project where I was going to try to 
go to every park and preserve and uh, natural intentionally preserved space on Long Island, all of those green spots on Google Maps, and take photos and talk a little bit about what you could see in those different places. And yeah, that was definitely, people would search for these these places and land on the blog and tell me later, oh, thanks, I was so glad that you posted that. I went and it was wonderful. And I guess your your project has kind of been on back burner now? It has definitely been <laughs> deprioritized <laughs> due to a bunch of other projects that came up in the meantime. It was a little more logistically difficult to, than I originally expected to get to all of these natural places on Long Island. It's a very long island. Um, right. And, and a lot of the spaces are more than an hour away from me, so I might have been a little too ambitious for that project at that point. I definitely would love to get back to it, though, because as far as I'm aware, there really isn't any big catalog of all of these fantastic spots. And what a lot of people don't know, I think, about Long Island is that we have around all of the suburban sprawl and the the city creeping out east, we have this fantastic legacy of people who have been defending and preserving the natural spaces and the agricultural spaces on Long Island dating back to the 60s. And that legacy has left amazing parks and preserves. We have thousands of acres of preserved land right in the middle of the island. Um, so, you know, despite what your original, what a lot of even Long Islanders' perception of Long Island is, there is a lot of really valuable green space here. And I always thought that it would be cool to pull that into one main resource where you could see this is these are the Nature Conservancy spaces, and that is tied by a green belt to this other county park and all of these other things so that people could see all of the available wild space that they can visit, you know, within 10 minutes of their home. That actually might be a really good book to pitch. <laughs> that I know that might be one of them. Yeah. The um, I know, like around here, we have like 50 hikes around 50 miles of Houston, and I'm sure similar other cities have similar books. So I think that would be that'd be really cool. That was one I of was... the intentions of the project when it kicked off, but <laughs> <laughs> didn't quite go that way. Well, it'll be Maybe a revival someday. Yes, I think I. I would buy it, even though I don't live there. <laughs> um, another one of your projects has been the Birdseed Field Guide. Um, what got you into um, starting that? And I guess, I mean, birding is a big part of of your naturalist life. How did you get into birding and, and wanting to get into art and drawing them? So birding was really kind of my entry point into a lot of my natural history um, investigations. You know, when you get in the woods, you're looking for birds. And then, you know, when there aren't any birds, you look around, there's a lot of really other cool stuff to to focus on and learn about. Um, I used to say that I hadn't been birding that long, but I guess it's been almost 10 years now. So I can't say that anymore. Um, yeah. It always felt like it was so much more recent. I you I lived in Philadelphia for a few years, and one of the things that I did after work to de-stress was I would take a 20-minute drive down to the John Hines National Wildlife Refuge, which is just across the highway from the airport. 
and it's a it's a wetland and there's there's trails and it's an amazing little well not little it's an amazing spot full of a lot of birds and I had I didn't have any field guides um, but the birds were just right on the trail there was a nest of yellow warblers the first time I went and I didn't even know what they were but they were right off the trail at eye level and I could see the little female sitting on her nest and yellow warblers for people who don't know are these they're no bigger than your thumb. They're these tiny little fiery bright yellow birds um, that kind of escape notice unless you know what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. And they were right there and I had to go I had to go find out what they were. And there were all of these other birds too and it just finding out what they were and spending time in their space kept drawing me deeper and deeper and deeper into learning about them and using them as a jumping off point for and a reason for being outside. And uh, since then, I mean, once you start knowing something, once you learn something's name, the next time you see it, you have this instant connection with it. And that kept happening as I was learning about all these different birds. And they, so they definitely draw you into the natural space. You, you have a different access to it. So anyway, fast forward a few years and I have, <laughs> And um, I've always wanted to learn how to paint watercolors. And like I said earlier about the familiar wilderness, when I'm learning something, I like to have a project to practice with. And that's right. how Birdside Field Guide started. Um, the familiar wilderness had kind of faded back a little bit. I hadn't, I wasn't writing as much, but I still really wanted to share this natural history excitement and enthusiasm. And also I wanted something to paint, some subject. And so I started painting common everyday birds that, um, you know, you know, you, you know, robins and, you know, starlings and, you know, sparrows. Well, everybody knows, everybody thinks that they don't know much about birds, but you say, can you name 10 birds? And they can rattle off 10 birds off the top of their head. And I, and in the back of my head, I said, you know, if you can start with 10 birds, the next 15 are not that hard. And the next 25, also not that hard. And pretty soon before you know it, you know 50 birds. So with Birdside Field Guide, I, Birdseed Field Guide, I started mm-hmm. off, I was going to paint, I'm painting at least 50 everyday birds that you can easily know. And I am including in the paintings in the post, it's a Tumblr at uh, birdseedfieldguide.tumblr.com. Um, each of the posts includes a lot of information about how that bird lives, what it eats, what it feeds its young, where it lives, what it sounds like, to take that image of that bird and hang a name on it and then give you a little bit of extra information so that the next time you see that bird, now you have a little bit more of a connection with it. The next time you see it, another connection. And then you learn 10 more and you have a connection with all of those. So not only am I practicing painting, but hopefully people are learning a little something about it and engaging a little bit more with these common everyday birds that live all around them. Um, it has definitely, I've ha- I have posted 26 birds so far, um, and there's definitely been an improvement in my watercolor skills. So it's accomplishing that aspect of things for sure. Yeah, I've definitely noticed a very good improvement in your watercolor. Actually, I'm pretty, like, inspired by how your skills, your grid skills. <laughs> oh, uh, watercolor is not one of my 
my forte is I'm a pastel kind of person, but um, did you start like by photographs? Because I know you do some plain air stuff too. With how? <laughs> With the bird seed birds, I usually I have to do them in my home. I have to do them kind of after work, so I usually pull up a couple of reference photos off of Google and combine them into a posture that is pretty representative, pretty typical of the bird. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to just do a posed silhouette image right. of the bird. I really kind of like it to have a little character, have a little energy, and if I'm succeeding in conveying that that's that's what I'm aiming for um but yeah I I use photos for the birdseed birds um it helps me get them done a little bit more quickly Uh, but I do I'm I do a little bit of nature sketching I do a little bit of plein air stuff um this year I'm hoping to do even more so we'll see where that goes cool that's awesome I like that you're using the common everyday birds because again it's the same thing as the natural areas people after you, you see them day after day you kind of start to ignore them and you don't really realize how enmeshed they are in the environment and how they affect just even in the city you know boat tail grackles playing in trash cans that kind mm-hmm. of thing <laughs> um and if you start and stare and look at the birds and just see how actually pretty beautiful they are even if maybe at, at first glance they seem a little bit dingy or or if they're playing in the trash can trashy. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, I, I definitely like that you're you're doing that. And, I mean, most people want to know the exotic birds, but they getting to know the ones that are around them helps them get to know those exotic birds. Right. It's, it's like you said, a jumping off point. Right. And I kind of, I, I live by, you know, you can really only love the things that you know well. So everybody knows these birds. Why not start with them? And from the other side of it, from my side, um, you know, you sit down and you spend time with a starling and a paintbrush, and all of a sudden you appreciate it in another level, another totally different way. And you include the research that goes into the blurbs so that you, as I'm telling people, these cool things about starlings, I'm remembering them too. So the next time I see a starling, I'm like, oh, yeah, you're a cool bird. Not just, oh, yeah, you're a common everyday bird that I can see anytime I want. All of a sudden, you know, again, there's that additional point where I can make a connection with this bird. And I, I love that. That's part of what, that's one of my favorite parts about the Bird Seed Project is, again, I'm getting to connect with birds that otherwise I as a birder, I could say, oh, it's another robin. But as a person, I can say, look at that robin. He's, he's hunting. He's looking for worms. Look at his pretty dark head. Look at his bright red breast. Look at his uh, chin freckles, all of these different things. Yes. That's awesome. Um, well, you're talking about common commonality. I mean, some of our, like, biggest extinctions have been very common animals that have just hunted to extinction extinction like the passenger pigeon and um oh my goodness it's escaping me the other there's another very bird that's escaping my uh that went extinct oh gosh anyway but yeah a few common birds and they've gone extinct because they were hunted and we should appreciate 
commonality. Right, <laughs> abundance is right protection. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Um, so you're teaching yourself birds, but you've also been teaching yourself fungus and moths and plants, and you do all of this. How, what's your, how are you teaching yourself? You're just going one by one down the line <laughs> and how to, how do you, I mean, you're kind of like me, you find something and you get interested in it. Um, and you want to know more all about it. Um, so I guess what's your, what's your technique? I think it, it comes from a couple different places. You know, I have always been a, a field guide flipper and an encyclopedia reader and a dictionary scanner. So, um, you know, I get a new I get a new field guide. I flip through it, and just by exposure, there's a little bit of familiarity, right? So then the next right. time I go into the woods, maybe I see something that. I've seen before or resembles something that I've seen before and I kind of know that I have um, have a name to hang on it and I you know I remember where I saw it in a field guide or I make notes of the the field marks so what color is it what size is it what's the habitat and this goes for birds and funguses and especially with moths you can't really remember all of the field marks so I take a photo I usually pull out my my phone camera and snap a shot you know, flipping through those field guides, you end up with a lot of loose names and thoughts and concepts rummaging around in your head. And then as soon as you, you see it and you identify it in the woods or on the beach or whatever, all of a sudden that abstract concept that's been rattling around in your head now has a physical thing to attach itself to. So now all of a sudden I kind of know what this is. I recognize it. The next time I see something similar, it'll I'll the name will come more readily. I'll remember where I saw it before. Um, on the other hand, you know, I often come across things that I've never seen before. So what a lot of naturalists end up developing is this eye for things that are different, things that you've never seen before. Um, they stand out. They've got a different color or a different shape. And so, you know, as you grow up as a naturalist, you you learn how to either remember what made that thing unique and different that you haven't seen before, or um, the, the smarter naturalists keep naturalist notebooks. And right. They, <laughs> they write down what makes it different and unusual and surprising. And then they go back, and a lot of us naturalists are known for having very extensive libraries. So we've got field guides for everything. I've got field guides for ferns and for insects and for moths and butterflies and dragonflies. And you flip through, which is always fun. And then when you finally figure out what you were looking for or what you were looking at, you can learn about it. And so that creates the additional connection. The next time you see it, you're going to remember the tidbit that came up when you finally identified it. So it's it's kind of a, a cumulative process of pre-learning and then post-learning and then um, training yourself as a naturalist to recognize things that are new and different. Excellent. Basically kind of the same methods I use. <laughs> Flipping through books and then, I mean, photos for one help a lot. And, Absolutely. And, and of course, going to Google and if I can't find it anywhere else and just searching images or mm -hmm. typing up strange phrases, yeah. <laughs> you know, mushroom, orange, this, blah, 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 Texas, you know, exactly. and eventually you come across it and you figure it out. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of times if you can, if you're focusing on a particular thing, so say you're focusing on moths or butterflies, 
um, once you start narrowing it down and learning like families or even orders, um, it helps identify. So if if I saw, you know, a yellow butterfly, I'm going to automatically go, yeah, that's probably a sulfur. Well, I wonder what kind that is. It's easier for you to go that way. So once you get that, that bigger framework, then you can, and that, that takes time, of course. But once you get that bigger framework, then you can start saying, okay, if I know this is a sulfur, what do I need to look at on this particular butterfly to figure out which kind of sulfur it is? So, yeah, it's it's amazing how you go from this not really much knowledge at all, no framework. You go out in the, and you see things and you look them up and you see things and you look them up. And eventually now you, you end up with kind of a a library in your head of categories and yes eventually you get to the specifics where where the experts who are like 15 years ahead of me will go and be like that's a blah 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 latin name yeah (laughs) and you're like wow that's cool and then that's also where you learn is you try to remember all their latin names and things that people sprout out right (laughs) and pretend like you understood them the first time they said oh yeah i know all about that (laughs) and then go home and look it up and Oh, okay. That makes more sense. <laughs> okay. Got it. Uh, awesome. Um, so you had said you have been working with a community garden. Mm-hmm. And what have you been doing? Are you gardening? Are you helping? How are you helping these gardeners, I guess, should I say? So the community garden that I belong to is a, it's a combination school community garden, which is it's it's a really cool interaction. It's right outside of a local middle school. They gave us the plot of land. We we got donations, built a fence. There are a bunch of raised beds for community members to grow vegetables. And then there is a greenhouse and other vegetable beds that are available for teachers and their students to grow things in. And when we first started the garden, this was about six years ago now, um, most of the community members who were participating had never grown vegetables before. So for all of the community members, it was this amazing learning experience. Everybody kind of really bonded, and now everybody trades recipes for how to use up all of the kale. That aspect has been wonderful. And then the students and the teachers who have grown things, um, that's been amazingly wonderful. They They developed their program to the point where all of the salads in the cafeteria come from the students' greenhouse. Oh, wow. And they sell the excess to parents as they're picking up the kids. You can grab a bag of greens for $2, and it was grown right at the greenhouse. And so the kids are learning about nutrition, and they're learning about where their food comes from, and it's been this just amazingly successful program and combination. Um, I came in and had grown vegetables before and um you know my I was lucky enough that my first year was very successful so from there on I kind of was advising and helping other gardeners uh, grow their vegetables well since then the gardens evolved and there are a lot of really amazing gardeners in there now and uh, we're kind of going for the next level so this year I'm very excited. We are converting a bunch of the border beds from kind of just landscaping beds to now they're going to be um, native plant pollinator gardens. Oh, cool. And this kind of started, I had been talking with the um, 
the woman who organized it, she's amazing. I've been talking from the beginning about how cool it would be to have pollinator gardens. And last year, one of the areas that I was responsible for, I had tucked in a couple of milkweed plants. And I didn't think anything was going to happen with it. There were three of these spindly little milkweeds, and they were in the corner and surrounded by a parking lot. At the end of the season last summer, I found these gigantic monarch caterpillars on my or devoured milkweed plants. And I ran around saying, oh, my gosh, have you ever seen uh, monarch caterpillars to all of these people, all of the other gardeners who were there? And they said, no, what do they look like? Are they good? <laughs> and I said, "Oh my goodness!" <laughs> well, are they good? Wow. Yeah. So it was um, for people who had been. Everybody grows organic. Everybody is very careful. Everybody knows the concept of pollinators in the community garden, but that was kind of a surprise that they weren't familiar with monarch butterflies. Um, so. Fast forward, and it was this really cool thing. Everybody was very excited about it. I'm pretty sure the monarchs pupated at the end of the summer, so they probably made it down to Mexico if all went well. Um, And uh, I think that inspired everybody to say, hey, let's do this. Let's make a pollinator garden. So uh, we're going to pull out the border plants, and uh, we're going to hopefully partner with an organization called the Long Island Native Plant Initiative, and they harvest local ecotypes of Long Island native plants and grow them and propagate them for commercial sale. And so we're hopefully going to partner with them and fill these beds with Long Island native plants and post up a bunch of signs, like educational signs about what's going mm-hmm. on and why pollinators are good. Um, and maybe by the end of the summer, we'll have some really cool pollinators and butterflies and things that have been using the beds oh wow that is so awesome I'm really excited (laughs) oh man that's really cool and what kind of other questions have you had from other people about I mean about pollinators and about natural history and the gardening garden or is it been mostly about getting rid of pests that kind of thing (laughs) um It's kind of been surprising to me that not as many not as many questions as I would have thought over the course of the few years. So I am a big mouth, and I've always made a point to say if I notice there's a hummingbird hanging around the garden and there's other gardeners in there, I point out and say, oh, my goodness, did you see the hummingbird? And usually they haven't, but then all of a sudden they see it, and that's really cool. So I've kind of had to be a little proactive and say, oh, did you right. see this white butterfly or this, that, or the other thing? Um, but ever since we had the monarchs last summer, people have been asking more questions and getting more excited about it. Great. What do you think the um, What do you think the reason is that maybe gardeners aren't paying attention to to I guess the natural world around them, um, the animals and the wildlife? Do you think it's just the focus? on their garden what they're growing or it's just a lack of awareness um I think it's kind of so I don't know did you ever read Michael Pollan's first book I can't remember what it was called he um he wrote a book about how he was gardening himself and he really carefully examined the idea that when we make gardens we are really deliberately separating this cultivated human space from wild space And we have this strange idea that this walled off space is under control 
And I think okay. I think that is a big reason why vegetable gardeners who are really in tune with the the, pro, the natural processes that make their vegetables grow and the fact that there are beneficial insects and pest insects that you want to control that that much is their awareness level but there's there's not really an access point from that to say you know that tomato hornworm turns into this really right. kind of cool moth that's gigantic right um so yeah, I leave oh, I leave my hornworms on. <laughs> so <laughs> I used to pretty proudly um, dispose of my hornworm. Oh no! And then I I would think I was mentioning it to a naturalist friend. She she asked me, so what do you do with your hornworms? And I I'm embarrassed about this now. I I really gleefully said, oh I chop them up, and she was so horrified. And I was like, I took a step back and I thought. Why am I chopping them up? Oh my gosh, that's terrible. So mm-hmm. since then, since then I've been much kinder to my hornworms. So even the naturalists have go into gardens with different perceptions about what's allowed there. Yeah, I mean, I had to say as much as like cabbage loopers and things like that are frustrating, I try not to be too overzealous in in pest control on on things like that because yeah, they do turn into these other butterflies and moths that are good pollinators and good for other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it, it It's a conundrum that I can definitely see how, especially as beginning gardeners, um, they're, they're faced with, I want my, my vegetables, but <laughs> right. This is really cool too. So, well, I hope that the, maybe that your native uh, border beds will spark some more conversation and hopefully a, you're going to get some different types of um, pollinators in there. Are you guys going to do any like mason bee um, hives or anything like that, or mostly focus on I, butterflies I and birds? Haven't really, you know. Of course, you and I know bees are more important pollinators than butterflies are, but the garden is located at a school entrance. That's that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so if it were tucked further back on the grounds, I wouldn't have any problem with it. But there are children going back and forth. And I think even, you know, we know most pollinators, pollinating bees are pretty well harmless, but we don't want to really be bad neighbors and right. You know, right. scare the parents. So we'll see. I mean, I'm going to, what I'm hoping to do is we'll see how the pollinator, the gardening aspect goes of it and what shows up and, and all of that. And then I'll see if I can gently push for some Mason bee houses and things like that. See, right. That's good. That's awesome. I am excited to hear. I mean, I don't know how much you're going to be sharing about that, but I may touch base with you and later in the summer and see how things are going. Well, especially. I, yeah. Oh, God. No, just especially because I'm curious, like what kind of other native plants uh, that your the initiative is going to be bringing in, like what kind of uh, things that they they grow out. That's. They do some cool. really, really interesting stuff. Most of their seed sources are from um, Long Island grasslands, believe it or not. But they hmm. also have a bunch of uh, smaller shrubs. Um, so there there are grasses and there are some forbs, the, the flowering plants, and then some shrubs. Hmm. So I'm hoping to get a mix. And, you know, my grand concept is to make it look like the kind of landscaping that people would want in their yards. Right. So that it's also kind of an ambassador patch to encourage people to bring these plants home into their own yards. 
and expand habitat there. Now, I speaking of like expanding habitat into other people's yards, I mean, I don't know if you have the same kind of gardening problem other people in the rest of the country do is, you know, like a big like shrub kind of anchoring the house and, you know, pansies and that kind of thing. Is that the same kind of landscaping that's going on on Long Island or yeah, a lot do you have of, any daring people? No, not really. <laughs> There's a lot of foundation planting and um, we have a lot of wooded areas. So a lot of people have scrub oak and and wild tangles kind of in, in corners of their yards, but not really, people aren't really very ambitious in their, their gardening for the most part. Right. And we have a lot of, um, we have a lot of the, bad citizens of gardening and landscaping that are really popular. Things like um, Japanese barberry as foundation plants that have Mm -hmm. escaped and run rampant through all their woods. And a lot of those things are being phased out. So now people are hopefully going to be looking for, you know, what can I replace that burning bush with? Well, here's a native blueberry and it does a lot of the same thing and it's pretty and it's beneficial to your neighbors. So, right. Good. So um, I guess we can find who are your, anybody you look up to, naturalists, gardeners, scientists, other people that you've learned from that you may want to share with everybody else that they may want to be able to learn from. One of my favorite uh, gardening sources, um, and I only discovered his work last summer, but Douglas Tallamy is he's an entomologist at the University of Delaware. So his focus is on insects. Um, Mm -hmm. But he and his partner have worked on their property for for decades, and they have this gorgeous, wonderfully landscaped yard that's full of native plants. And so he kind of combined the two aspects of his life, his landscaping and his, his entomology, and he's written books um, one of them is called Bringing Nature Home. And, yeah, that's the one I'm familiar with. Yeah, and then he worked with, um, I think his name is Rich Dark, um, to do an actual landscaping book using native plants, how hmm. you can use these different things. And uh, he's um, his main point is basically that as we've been developing so many of our remaining natural spaces into residential areas, we're still kind of continuing that divide between this is human space and this is natural space. Whereas we could easily be using our human spaces to increase available habitat just by using native plants so that insects still have food sources to reproduce. You know, the more insects you have that are reproducing, the better your birds are doing better the birds are doing, everything kind of works together. So just by making wildlife friendly choices in your, in your landscaping, you can benefit all of these other creatures that we want to keep around. So he's been really inspiring to me. Um, And I've just, I love the way that he approaches things and he's, he's got a really good eye for beauty and he just, he hits all of my, my buttons. I love him. Um, other people that I look forward to, um, Julie Zikafus is a, a friend of mine, but she's also an amazing artist, naturalist, writer. She's got an amazing curiosity for the way the world is around her and a, a wonderful way, kind of similar to the vein that, that both of us 
that we approach the world. Um, mm-hmm. So her her writing, her work, and her insatiable curiosity is always inspiring to me. She has a blog, juliesikafus.blogspot.com, uh, that I visit pretty frequently. She's always got something interesting going on. Uh, yeah, I like her humor. She has some interesting humor. Yeah. <laughs> She's she doesn't shy away from um, poking dead things on camera, <laughs> which is a dirty little secret of naturalists. We like to poke dead things. Well, Julie does it in public and makes out of it. Oh my goodness! And so, any particular other books? I mean, you we mentioned bringing uh, nature home, but any other books or field guides that that you love that you think uh, people might should check out? Um. So one of my favorite field guides is the Warbler Guide by mm. Tom Stevenson and uh, Whittle, Scott Whittle. They, it's a fantastic guide. Warblers are my secret passion. Those are the tiny little colorful birds. It's just a fun book to flip through because you see all of these amazing birds and ways to learn about them and their cool lifestyles and habits. Um... I have uh, natural history style books that I like. Do those count, or are we focusing on field guides? Oh, it doesn't matter. Anything, anything that you think is relevant. Um. Oh, jeez. Now I'm blanking out. I had a whole list. <laughs> you can get back to me, and I can include it in the show notes. That might be good. I mean, I'm kind of a magpie. I get a lot of my stuff off of Twitter. I have a pretty carefully curated Twitter feed, so I let other people find stuff for me. <laughs> Right. Um, so is there anything you want to get better at learning at in the next year or lifetime? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it never stops. Um, this year, I, I kind of compartmentalized my years. Last year was a year of botany and bugs. But I think this year I would really like to continue learning about moths. Um, I didn't get to identifying nearly enough of the moths that visited my my moth sheet last summer. Um, but also I really want to dive deep into Long Island botany. There's a lot of plants that I just don't know or recognize by sight, and that's unacceptable as far as I'm concerned. And um, I, I always want to improve with my art. That's kind of been my, my sanity outlet. I, I feel like it's so low stakes. Nobody really cares if I'm good at painting except for me, and so I can do it for myself and not really worry about the failures. All of the failures are just fine. They help you. Right. That's good. Um, So where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, I know you haven't really updated your blog lately, but maybe the blog and uh, anywhere else. So I am often on Twitter. My handle is a strange combination, but it adds up to familiar wilderness. Um, also Instagram. My big writing project right now on the internet is a tiny letter. So it's a week, uh, bi-weekly newsletter uh, that maybe I'll send you the link so that you can post it up in the, the show notes. Sure. I, that's where a lot of my familiar wilderness writing has ended up lately. Um, Birdseed is also continuing. That's birdseedfieldguide.tumblr.com and the other place that people are going to be able to find me in the next few months is in a book. So I'm writing a backyard guide 
a guide to common backyard butterflies. That's going to be coming oh. out. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's kind of why a lot of the projects have fallen by the wayside, is that my deadline is coming up, and I'm really cramming hard to get that done. But um, the book is going to be published next spring, and it's going to be a, a beginner's guide to common backyard butterflies and hopefully help people start getting familiar and hang names on the butterflies that they see in their backyards and in the woods. Now, are you drawing, uh, illustrating that book too, or is oh, it photography? I wish. It's, it's going to be photography. Um, okay. But maybe in the future there might be an illustrated guide. We'll see if that's in the cards. Wow, that's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Oh, I'm, I'm excited. Is it going to be focused on your region or is it nationwide? Could we all find some a butterfly in there we could identify in our backyard? Yeah, it's going to be a nationwide guide. There are 55 or 56 species. We haven't nailed it down yet. Um, okay. It's a little bit difficult because once you get into the Rockies, you know, you get fewer butterflies that have large regions. But we tried to make sure that there are butterflies from every area, especially the common ones that are nationwide or significant portions of the country. Right. So there should be something for everybody in it. Sweet. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about being a naturalist. And hopefully it will spur some listeners to maybe think outside of the box in their own gardens and take a little more time to identify that, that weird bug or weird spot on a leaf mm-hmm. that turns out to be a gall, you know, yeah, right? <laughs> interesting things like that. And um, maybe, maybe next year when you have your, your butterfly book come out, I'll have you back on and we can talk about butterflies. That would be fun. So, all right. Thanks again so much. Thank you. Yay.